Pursuit of Podcast, a purely guest-centric show focusing on people and organizations that advance positive change. Positivity can be anywhere, and in a time of vast discord, the pursuit of is finding those who champion its causes loudest. Join us as we sit and learn about the pursuits of local leaders in their community. Let's go. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Pursuit of podcast, where it's truly not us, it's you. I'm Ryan Buck, Artist Development for New Leonard Media. With me is the boss, Mark Wilson, President, New Leonard Media. How are you, sir? I'm doing well today, Ryan. I'm wearing my new favorite shirt. I, it looks, that's enough of that. Our guest today is Allison Cadillac, founding partner with Sova here in Traverse City. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for being here. It's, it's really a delight, and uh, we were talking a little bit before we started. This kind of leads me into the first question about Sova, but what's the elevator pitch? Oh, the elevator or, or maybe pitch. maybe the Empire State elevator pitch. It doesn't have to be that brief. But when you say, this is what I do at a party, yeah. what do you say this is what you do? Oh, it's such a good question. This is going to be very useful. So let me try something gonna out. going to workshop right. it. I'm going to workshop it awesome. here with you. So I say that I am the co-founder of a mission-driven organization that is focused on helping this country actually fulfill its social contract about the relationship between education and Upward mobility. That's a terrible elevator pitch. So it's, maybe there's a better one that I could come up with while we're here together. We can call it very accurate. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, maybe this will help because from the website, it says you specialize in building cultures and climates for innovation in higher education mm-hmm. and workforce development. Yep. When you were building this, what was your original definition of innovation in this regard? And has it changed at all since? Oh, that's a great question. So higher education in this country is supposed to create avenues for people to better their lives through education. But our structures, our colleges and universities actually weren't designed to meet the needs of the students that exist today. And so for me, innovation is anything in higher ed or workforce. And when I say college, I mean two-year degrees, one-year certificate, four-year graduate school, I think of the whole spectrum of learning after high school, anything that is aimed at making our colleges, universities work better for today's students, to me, counts as innovation because they don't actually work particularly well for today's students. And it's interesting to me to think about the terms innovation and academia were never really synonymous. Yeah. So... Was that something that inspired you right off the bat? Was that the place that you could fill? That was a gap that you could fill? Well, I started actually as a faculty member. So I started down a path of being an academic and then found that very dissatisfying. And as a result of being jaded, I guess, by the experience of being an academic, I went yeah. in the direction of, wait, surely we can do a better job with this than what I was being prepared for as a professional to be a professor in a classroom. It seemed disconnected from what students actually want and need. So I think that there was a gap in my experience that led me out of academics and academia, but back toward higher ed in this way. Right. And in what we talked about building cultures, what are your thoughts on the word culture as it relates to academia or even corporate? Does that word belong? It's a good question. Well, I'm not sure who was it that said that culture eats strategy for breakfast and 
organizational effectiveness for lunch and everything else for dinner. Right. I think culture is an overwhelming term for people in a lot of ways. And it's also a, an inaccurate term because in any given setting, any given organization, there are always multiple cultures, subcultures, and different sort of norms and ways of being. So culture is a tricky word. It's the one that people go to because when I use culture and when we think about it, we're thinking about how do people actually work together and create an environment in which they do something together and right. creating norms. But it's an overwhelming idea. So we've tried to veer away a little bit and we talk about culture on the website and we talk about culture as shorthand, but it is very tricky because it's, it's a pretty complicated concept in this setting. Right. Well, maybe in any setting. Right. Well put. You achieved your PhD in political science from the University of Minnesota, correct? Yes. And you received your BA from MSU, where you focused on political theory, constitutional democracy, and English literature. Yes. <laughs> what was the dream back then? <laughs> I wish somebody had talked to me about the different things that a person can do when you care about things like philosophy or storytelling or the power of narrative to change people's lives or open people's minds. But that was not part of any conversation. I was a remarkably undistinguished high school student who barely graduated from high school. And it wasn't until I was in my first philosophy class that I realized that I actually love learning. So I started by following what I wanted to learn about. And that slowly narrowed my path toward academics and academia. And I had professors who said, oh, well, this is clearly the direction you should go. But I think that was one of the problems with higher ed is that there are so many other kinds of ways to make a contribution or do interesting, meaningful things or make a living doing things that you care about related to narrative or storytelling or philosophy. Yeah. So I did. I had absolutely no vision <laughs> when I was in college. And I'm still trying to figure out what to be when I grow up. So. I don't know that I ever actually even wanted to own a business. I didn't realize exactly what I was getting into when we got into SOVA. So. Wow. I, I really like the way you framed, because I know there's some kind of adage out there about the value of, and you're consistently pursuing knowledge. You're pursuing the yeah, next thing. Yeah, I love learning stuff. Yeah. Which is probably the best reason to do it. Yeah. If you think it doesn't need to be a great underlying grand plan. D did you want to be like a nighttime political talk show host? I have never wanted to be a nighttime political talk show host. No, I think I, I came to a place where as I got dissatisfied with being in academics, but still cared a whole lot about what educational institutions do and don't do in a country that aspires to be a democracy, that I wanted to figure out how to make good ideas live long enough to actually become solutions to problems for students or for our society. But I have never wanted to be a pundit or an English degree in college. Mm -hmm. and, but storytelling, philosophy, there are applications to these things. Absolutely. And maybe even more so giving distinct advantages to somebody in a business world that communicates on, at that level. Would you think that may be the case now? Absolutely. I think the, the skills that employers say they're looking for are actually a lot of those things that you pick up in classes that would be called liberal arts classes, right? The, the classes that teach you how to think or teach you how to critically analyze a problem or make a sort of make an argument and understand complexity, understand yeah. lots of different sides of issues. Those are the skills we actually need to thrive, I think, in any given career. So it's been one of the things I was dissatisfied with academia yeah. is that this distinction between education for work and 
education for life or for expanding your mind, those things, that's a false dichotomy. Those things go hand in hand. Yeah. We did have another conversation uh, for this part, podcast with somebody who was bringing artists into their organization. I think similarly, that's another interesting Absolutely. position to take. Now, the name Sova was influenced by family, specifically yes. your father. Yep. And was and you said you were not a remarkable student, but was education a big part of your upbringing at all from your dad? Yeah, education and being curious about the world and learning about the world and being present in the world was really important to uh, my parents, to our family. So education was highly valued and there was a set of expectations right. around education there, but they were also of a different generation. He was the product of war and abuse and poverty. So he had a different set of constraints on his life. I mean, right. he had a law degree when he came as a refugee and he drove a cab when he got here because there was nothing recognized in the credential that he had. And he was a displaced person after World War II. And so learning and being curious and being engaged in the world was always a top priority for our family. Wow. And he was able to demonstrate that enough to you that you recognize that even at a young age. Yes, definitely. He also sort of modeled it. He worked his way into a career and into the ability to support his family and to create a really different life for his kids than his childhood. Oh. So he, he definitely modeled what it looks like to figure out how to make it in the world as it tosses whatever it tosses at you. Well, that's incredible. If you go to the website, you have a partner in the founding of Sova. So you're obviously the daughter of the refugee of war. Yep. And your partner is a fifth generation son of Kentucky dairy farmers. And he was the first in his family to go to college. Yes. Which I thought is interesting. How did this partnership come about? And were you always looking for a partner? Ah, I think I probably was always looking for a partner, but I didn't really realize it. I think one of the reasons, again, that I left academics was that it was really isolating. I loved learning with my students and I loved being in community with my students, but it still felt like I was here alone with the power holder, the professor, and they were. So there was always a kind of collaborative something that was missing in that environment. But I met Paul years ago. I had heard that there was a program officer at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who had a background in deliberative democracy and community organizing, and I couldn't believe it. And we were connected that way, and he funded some of the work that I led when I was at Public Agenda. And then we just started talking over the years about what we thought was wrong with higher education and what we thought was right and where we thought we could make a contribution. And it just sort of snowballed At what point did it turn into, we should do something about this? <laughs> well, That's it, the most fascinating yeah, thing. Because yeah. you just mentioned conversations over yep, years. Over years, yeah. Well, it happened at a table uh, in Austin, Texas, in a break in a meeting we were both There's in. There's a moment. There is a moment. Oh, this is exciting. Yes, there was a moment. We, were, we, were, we had left a meeting, or there was a break in the meeting, and we were sitting together at a table outside uh, in this courtyard in Austin. And I was thinking about how overwhelmed I had been with what I was doing at that time at Public Agenda, that there was just so much. And I jokingly said to him, do you want my job? I feel like I'm burning out. There's just too much going on, but the work really matters. And I've thought about who I could 
hand my job to and you're the only person I can think of. Do you want my job? And he was with another organization and he laughed and said, no, I don't want your job. But what do you want to do? What is it that if you could clear everything away, all the clutter away, what would you want to do? And I think I said something like, I want to help really good ideas live long enough to be solutions to problems. And he said, I... Had you been rehearsing that or did that just... I, well, synapses we, fired and off it went. I think synapse, in that moment, synapses fired and off it went because it was nobody had asked me that. We don't ask each other, what would you be doing if you could do anything? Where do you really wish you could make a difference? So it was really cool that he sort of lifted my eyes from the immediate thing that I was worried about and said, well, what is it that you want to do? And when that fell out of my mouth without <laughs> really realizing what I was saying, he said, I think I'd like to build a business around that idea because the world needs that. Yeah. And we talked about how we observed where change felt like student-focused change, where you're actually trying to remake institutions to work better for real students. Like change falls apart in the same places over and over again. Mm -hmm. And we had been talking about that for years, but we hadn't been talking about, well, if you could, how would you pursue things differently? What would you do to do a better job with that stuff. So he had gotten to a place because he was fifth generation Kentucky dairy farmer and the first in his family to go to college. It took him a long time to get to a place where he was comfortable saying, I want to build a business. I want to build something. Because as he told me, where he was from as a kid, like the person that owned stuff was jerk, generally speaking, right? The person uh, that had the power, the person that was the, the owner, the business owner, and, the town yeah. patriarch, or the yeah. boss, or the what, right? And... So he had to go on his own journey to get to a place where he was like, wait, it doesn't actually make me a bad person to want to build something beautiful. So we started talking about the ideas that we had for what we wanted to do. And then he started talking about the how of it. And right. that was the beginning. Wow. It's really incredible that you have a, a, a place, Austin, yeah. yep. and a moment, which is really extraordinary. I don't, I don't know how many folks who maybe say that or maybe recollect what that spark was. But SOVA exists to help America fulfill its social contract, and you talked about that before, yep. to provide real upward mobility for more people through higher education. Can you elaborate a little bit on what social contract means? Yeah. From my perspective, we aspire in this country to be a democracy. We say that we aspire to that, despite all of the contradictions in our founding and the way that we actually operate. And part of that is that there are the skills and habits and sensibilities that free people should have, right? And in a country that calls itself a democracy, education is a promise. It's if you work hard, if you get an education, if you develop skills and competencies and capacities, you can achieve your goals of making a better life for yourself and your family. And it doesn't matter where you were born, it doesn't matter who you are, that education should be a leveler. It should level the playing field. And it doesn't work that way in our country, but the promise is there. And the promise is really worth pursuing and holding our institutions accountable for making good on. So when I think about the social contract, it's there is a tacit promise that education will give you a path to a better future regardless of accidents of birth or fortune. Wow. Well, okay, that was clearly not synapses just firing. There was some thought you may have said before, yep. but education as a leveler, I'd never heard it put that way before. 
And I think for many years, uh, long ago, thankfully, the pursuit of higher education or education was seen as is not a good thing to do or is seen yeah. as, as upper class or wanting to be better than. Yep. That isn't the case as much anymore, but is there a similar version of that today? Definitely. I think for most of higher education history in this country and everywhere, it was something that only some people had access to, right? Like It's only for the people who are born into wealth or into property or into status that you get the benefits of education. But in a country that aspires to be a democracy or calls itself a democracy, Mm -hmm. that can't just be reserved for some portion of society. But Still, our institutions, our colleges and universities sort of function in that way. They do sort people in and out of opportunity along race and class lines. And there continues to be this tendency in higher education to use that mechanism to sort rather than to create opportunities to lift everybody. Absolutely. And the name means owl. Yes. And it's Czech, correct? It is. It's also Russian. And in Slavic languages, it shows up as owl, but it does mean things in other languages, too. I learned recently that it means sleep in Swedish, and it means a beating or a thrashing in Portuguese. So, so. <laughs> when, because I, do people think that SOVA stands for something, S-O-V-A? They do. They always ask, what does it stand so for? So it's good to clarify. Yeah, so we say, no, it just, it means owl in Czech. What was the inspiration for the the name owl we chose the owl as so in lots and lots of cultures the owl is a symbol of wisdom but for us we're thinking about we wanted to be reminded that what we were trying to do was practical and paul and i both believe that ultimately all wisdom is practical it's what you do with it it's how you help people do good things together and we wanted to be reminded that we were trying to be wise and that for us Wisdom is about practical experience and what you do with it. We also wanted to have something that would be a nod to Paul's rural roots. And so he's, the owl is an ever-present feature of rural communities and barns. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So we thought it was a good combination of our two backgrounds. So when founding a company, that's one of those things. What are you going to call it? There's a process. And when you're doing something like that, did you have somebody looking into these things for you? I mean, beating isn't bad. You're beating stereotypes. So right, right. there's a lot of ways you could spend sleep and beating. But that was it regardless, like Sova, that felt right. We did not. I wish I could say that we did research. I actually have this memory of sitting in bed, sort of looking check words or flipping through a dictionary and thinking and just shooting texts back and forth to Paul because we needed to have a name. We'd been planning for about a year and a half, but we needed to actually put a name on this thing. And so we were tossing ideas around, but there was not, I can't believe I'm just saying that there was not a rigorous process that resulted in so, but we almost named ourselves five under nine because we had five kids under the age of nine between our two families. When we started Sovin, we had no family wealth behind us. And so we were sort of jumping off a cliff with our families. And so for a moment, we thought, A lot well, of interesting imagery there. Yeah, exactly. You know, two of you <laughs> exactly. hand in hand, falling, plummeting. Exactly. <laughs> well, 509, that is pretty fun. But, you know, I guess you wouldn't always have five kids under nine. Exactly. So. Yeah, it was a moment in time. <laughs> and we hope that Sovin was a little bit more it's than It's so interesting that, that you, because my next question was what 
do you mean by all wisdom is practical? And, and thank you for, for going into that. Now, prior to founding SOVA, you were the senior VP at Public Agenda. Yes. Anything particularly that you took from there that's most applicable in what you're doing now? Yeah, I think a lot of that work was focused on elevating the voices and experiences of those closest to the problems that we were trying to solve. So really listening carefully to students, listening carefully to faculty, to staff, to the people, not the decision makers and the leaders that make decisions at a remove from the problems. But John Dewey said something along the lines of nobody knows how the shoe pinches like the person wearing it. So there was something about the work at Public Agenda that was about listening to the people whose shoes were pinching. I think that was what some of those principles and also the idea that if you help people, if you create the right conditions, people can do amazing things together. And that was something that we carried, that I carried with me into SOVA was a focus on creating the conditions for people to do Absolutely. good stuff together. And it feels like it, it it was almost incidental research for what you're doing in general yeah. as well. Yep. So when you have been listed, and I've always just been curious, as a visiting professor lecturer, what does that mean? Oh, it means that just as adjunct. It's like I didn't have any decision-making authority or any power in the department at all, you're and I was visiting. underpaid, and I probably didn't have health insurance, but I taught <laughs> five courses a semester. Sounds like... That's putting you in your place with that visiting title. Exactly. You're just visiting. You're just visiting. Wow. Okay. Thank you. That that's just been some. That's a personal thing. Sorry. I I, just always wondered what. Yeah, I think it's adjunct or contingent part time. But if they want to make it sound better that they're not paying you enough, (laughs) they sometimes give it a title like I'm visiting from someplace. (laughs) Special guest. Special guest. I would have. I'd I'd prefer that. I if I was in that position, I'd try to change the name. If it was just me, what I find really interesting about what Sova and you have honed in on is transfer students. Yeah. And in a June 2021 article on transfer students, transfer enrollment dropped 2.6% from that previous fall. Can you talk about some of the key issues and reasoning for focus on transfer students and and why a decline is, is not a good thing? Yeah, so transfer matters, and even the word doesn't fit as well as maybe it used to, uh, because most students today take credits from multiple institutions on their way to a Mm -hmm. credential. Right. But initially, we had a two-year community college system and a four-year university system, and the idea, at least implicitly, and my mom was a community college transfer student who got her, did two years in an affordable way, was able to get a scholarship to complete a four-year degree, and that promise of being able to get a bachelor's degree or get an advanced degree without having to shell out loads of cash is a really important promise that we make by saying, all right, you can start at one institution and finish at another and do it in an affordable way, but it doesn't work that way for students. It's not working that way. And so I think I got into transfer stuff because of listening to transfer students. I had the chance to conduct 50 focus groups with transfer students in Indiana about 10 years ago, I think 12 years ago, and just listening to story after story of students who were saying, I had this idea that I could afford to do this and make this work if I started here and went here, but it was such a broken road for them that it ended up a lot of lost time, a lot of lost money, but even more than that was sort of losing hope in the possibility of actually being able to achieve their goals. Transfer is really important because it's a path for economic mobility for people. 
And I heard you talk about a particular class called Power and Choice. And that's a fun one. How many good classes are missed because they're not transferable and you think students are missing out because of that? That's an interesting question. I I hadn't really thought about it like that because when I was, I loved my class, Power and Choice, that I taught. But nobody ever asked me to think about where it transferred or if it would transfer, if it transferred, if it would apply to somebody's program. Mm -hmm. As a faculty member, I should have been asking myself that. I should have been having some of those conversations. I think you can have lots and lots of great educational experiences in lots of different ways and places. That should be acknowledged at every step of a student's learning journey so that everything that I've done as a student gets applied toward my degree. So I don't want to see anybody missing out on any great opportunities for classes. I want the systems to work so that wherever students acquire learning, it's honored and acknowledged. Right, right. You started this pursuit around 2016? Yes. So where are you now compared to where you thought you would be? Oh, wow. Well, I have learned more in the last six years than, and again, I love learning things. And so that was one of the reasons to even do this. But I've just learned so much. The team at SOVA, we learn every single day more about what it means to navigate this field that we're in. So I couldn't have imagined that we'd be where we are right now, actively working in lots and lots of different states on issues, having established a presence. I didn't have the imagination for any of that. I wish I could say, I saw it all coming and I knew how it would all come together. But it's really surprising to just work and learn and improve and fail and get better and then just look around one day and say, wow, we have an organization. Like, that's cool. That That is a, a grand realization for sure at some point. But what's really fascinating to me about somebody in your position, in your role, is you're in an organization that is talking about tough stuff, but it's about positivity. It's, it's about good things. How do you establish, and I know we talked about not liking this word, but how do you establish the culture at Sova? Hmm. And what is it like to create that? Because it's two different things. Yeah, that's such a good question. And what leaps to mind is that it's actually up to all of us. It's not while Paul and I set the table and create the conditions, the culture at Sova and what we are doing is co-created by all of our colleagues. And we have team members in lots of different states. But we're values aligned. So I think it starts with sharing values about the ability to make positive change in the world and then to create conditions for people to pursue their own excellence in the context of that work. So I've learned so much from our colleagues. And I feel like the people that we work with on our team, our team members, they're the bearers of the culture of SOFA and they're co-creating it with us. And so I feel like it's not something I can set. It's something that we have to let evolve by empowering our team. In a 2013 talk to the North uh, Carolina Community Colleges on engaging stakeholders and building teams, which your intro to that, really funny. Oh, really? Oh, because no. you were like at right after lunch. And oh, you I remember said you, that. They you, always you asked for the, right the spot. At- you really leaned into <laughs> it because I get it. That spot after lunch is the worst. <sighs> and so I, I first have to, if I was wearing a hat, I would take it off to you to say, <laughs> really well done. That was funny. I, I got a laugh from that. And 
you you mentioned the Marx Brothers film Horse Feathers and, and the song whatever it is I'm against it. So again, really well done. But you were saying uh, with that um, dealing with complacent or antagonistic attitudes and and maybe apathy even. Yeah. Do you find that mentality is present or have we gained any momentum in the last five years, let's say? Well, change continues to be really, really hard. And I think some of the things that look like apathy or some of the things even that look like outright hostility when it comes to changing systems, longstanding systems, is fear of loss. And there's grieving that is comes with change. And I think we have not turned the corner on helping our colleges and universities actually work in ways that are aligned with what students need. So there's that mismatch. So there's still change is still hard. So I'm very fascinated by your positivity and your resilience because it almost feels like as we're talking, this is an insurmountable task. How do you stay motivated to keep this going? Oh man, it is hard. And it's funny, today is particularly hard. This week has been rough at work with just difficult work. I think it, what it comes down to is that there isn't really a choice. There, it's not. I'm not doing the work because we know that we're going to be successful. In fact, we, we have more setbacks than definitive wins in our work, but we do it because we have to. The alternative is doing nothing and not contributing where we can. And I think that's right. part of it is just Finding not sort of tempering your own expectations. Like we don't think we're going to solve everything, but boy, we're going to fight. Going to give it a shot. Yeah, we're going to give it a shot. And, and, and the, the glory is in, in the effort. Yeah, it's in the small wins. And they are. Sometimes the wins are so tiny, they're hard to see. But those are a big deal because they build other people's will yeah. for change. We show each other what we're capable of one little step at a time. And it's sort of the Miles Horton, Paulo Freire thing about making the road by walking. It's just sometimes it's one foot in front of the other. You've given a lot of great nuggets already. This is should be a paid episode, to be honest. Also in that 2013 talk, I really liked what you said, and I quote, most people underestimate their ability to influence the human pieces of the puzzle. So they look for easy fixes. Yep. Do you still feel that that's absolutely, true? absolutely? I think people don't they don't appreciate how much power they have. So this is back to your culture uh, question. People think that culture is something that happens to them or that they are. But every single day in our organizations, in our work, in our lives, we are either reproducing or we're challenging the way that our culture is operating. And I think a lot of people don't own the power that they have because the critical, if you're a faculty member or an advisor or a provost, there are people above you that are constraining what you can yeah. do. There are people around you constraining what you can do. And I think people tend to think, well, I don't have power to make change, but but you do. And so helping people own the power that they do have is really important. The other side of that is helping people think about, like resist the pull of wishful thinking and easy answers and quick fixes and magic bullets and technical solutions. Right. If we just did X or if we could just get the right technology, it's like, no, there's no easy way out of this. We're actually going to have to do the work together. But that's okay. And it is okay. Especially the yep. way you put it. Doesn't sound scary. Yeah, it's way. all right. We can do it. 
I find fascinating, again, we kind of talked about the differences between education and business, but how much time and energy do you spend on issues or challenges because those two concepts are adversarial? Oh, education and business? Oh, interesting. That is an interesting question. And I don't know if this is exactly an answer to it, but I don't think of those things as adversarial. I think of them as connected in ways that aren't totally appreciated. And, you know, like one of the things that we have learned in our work at SOVA is that you can have great ideas and you can have great evidence all day long, but if you don't have the structures, including the business plan and process around that to make it work, Mm -hmm. then that great idea isn't going to it's not going to go anywhere. It's right. not going to live long enough to actually right. do what you want it to do. And so in that sense, I don't see attention. On the other hand, I think it is a lot easier in a lot of industries to make a living than it is to make a positive difference. We have been really careful along the way about interrogating every step of the way what we're doing right. to make sure that we are not taking on work or doing work that doesn't stand a chance of making a positive difference for students. Wow. On that note, it's I'm fascinated by how you go out and get work. How important is assessing engagement, for example, in a potential client? Mm. What's your philosophy in in finding partners to work with? Wow. It's, so it's really interesting. We haven't, I feel like I need to knock on wood. Is there wood around here? No, yeah, Underneath the table. Absolutely. Go. You're good. All right. We haven't, we've never done any marketing of any kind. And part of it, I think, and we look at, we, and we analyze, like, where did our projects come from and what do they lead to? But we have a lot of work that comes through established working relationships with people that we have proven that we're willing to be shoulder to shoulder. We don't come in with the answers. We come in and we listen first. So there are things that we do as a matter of practice Mm -hmm. that I think has made us attractive to clients and partners in various places because they know that we'll be shoulder to shoulder with them. They know that we're going to be listening, that we're going to be respectful. So there's there's just some things about how we do our work that I think has led to people wanting to work with us, yeah. which is really cool. And I hope it lasts. <laughs> As do I. As you think about your journey up at this point, I'm sure you've had folks who guided you and educators that were profound to you. Was there any advice you were given along the way? back in the day maybe that just sounded insane at the time but now is 100 percent accurate my mom said do what you love and the money will follow and that did sound crazy to me at the time but i also did wander and do the things that i loved and bartended and waited tables for a decade while i was in grad school the other side of that visiting professor was waiting tables (laughs) For years and years, and it was a pretty underfunded operation, that whole (laughs) graduate school experience, but it did lead to these interesting paths. And I remember saying to my mom at some point on another conversation that I was really anxious. I think I was 18. I said, I'm really anxious about all of the unknowns about my life. I feel like I'm supposed to have something figured out and I don't have it figured out. And there's so many different ways to go and every decision feels like it's a big one. And she handed me a 20 page document. It was a little journal that she had kept from when I was born to when I was five. That was just like little anecdotes about me as a toddler. And she said, read this. And I took it and I read it and it was 
such an, an unbelievable relief because it turns out that I didn't need to worry about who I was going to be. I was who I had always been. Like there were things in this that were just like I'm who I was when I was two years old. That's weird. How did that happen? That's really so, extraordinary. Yeah, that was very cool. It was a huge gift from wow. her. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, uh, we're given advice from folks along the way, including yeah. our parents. And, and those are probably the biggest realizations, yeah. especially when you have your own kids, when you're going, yeah, they were pretty right about that. <laughs> yeah, Just exactly. took that, that yeah. bit of perspective. Yeah. On this journey, in this pursuit with Sova, has it made you look backwards and see any gaps in your own education? And would you have done anything different? <gasps> Absolutely. I would not have done a PhD. And I would not have listened to the people that told me that I could only be an academic based on what I said I was interested in. And hmm. I might have done a gap year. I think I might have done a lot of things differently if I knew that there were different ways to do it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I know this may seem like a pretty pedestrian question, but maybe not. Looking at the landscape of education the last two years have affected the youth very mm -hmm. intensely, mental health challenges, aside from everything else. Is there more that is because of the last two years that are barriers to you? Are there less? I don't have the statistics, but college admission rates, mm -hmm. are there less people even going to college? Yes. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I am very worried about what is happening to enrollment, particularly from students from historically and persistently marginalized and minoritized communities. And so we're seeing an exodus. So there is a decline in public confidence in higher education in this country that's been going on for some time, where there yeah. are really legitimate and important questions being asked about the value of college. But there's also widening equity gaps and opportunity gaps that are coming with this recent period in time, and it's extremely right. worrisome. But it's also encouraging to see more colleges and universities caring more about the mental health of students, the full array of needs that students have, so that it's not just about show up and sink or swim. It's actually, if you want to create the conditions for a leveled playing field for people to achieve their goals through education, then you actually have to care about the whole student. Right, right. <clears throat> Can you speak to... The most proud accomplishment you've had with a, a client, the biggest breakthrough, oh. one thing that stands out where you maybe have physically patted yourself on the back and said, we did something. That's a great question. And the thing that comes to mind is every time that we have worked to actually listen to students themselves and help policymakers or leaders or others actually listen to students themselves are the those are the most satisfying moments because those are the voices that are least often heard by leaders. So mm. it's more like a through line of things that I feel proud when we elevate the voices of learners. That's amazing. Even the small things I hope yeah. you know, you're proud of and I, yep. and I hope you feel that you're doing something amazing and, and I, you, you can tell. But to wrap up a little bit from the 2013 talk, have you learned anything further about starfish anatomy? Because you struggled a little bit with that metaphor. I was just curious as 
being a learner, right. do you know Where anything more about? Faces are okay. Right? Do we know? I don't know. I don't I have not learned more about starfish anatomy? But that image has stayed with me. Protecting yourself by clinging to the rock. It's a very, very good one. Yeah. And you are an author. <laughs> well, you are an author. You have published a book on John Dewey called Dewey's Critical Pragmatism. I'm a big fan of his decimal system, but. <laughs> Tell us one crazy, unique thing about him that we might not know, other than I think he went to the University of Michigan, right? He was at Michigan for a while. That was a glorified book report. It needs to be said that while it was published as a book, I do think of it more How many like- book reports can you buy on Amazon.com? Not a sponsor of this show. <laughs> it's still That's impressive, uh, but what's something unique about him that our listeners might not know about John Dewey? He wrote so much. He wrote 60-some books and 1,000 articles and his writing is really dense. But he made it clear that he learned more from playing with his kid than anything else. I think the thing about Dewey that's so cool is that he was grounded in the human experience. And I mean, sort of going back to the practical, wisdom is something practical. I think it's super cool that somebody that wrote that much and was that big a thinker actually learned most from playing with his kids. Wow. So any plans for another book at any time? <laughs> I, I would like to write something that is useful to people, but I, I think that might be a ways off here. But I do like the idea of something, maybe not a book, but something that can actually put wind in people's sails to do the good work that they're trying to do. But we'll see. Well, already, I think you've given a lot of inspiration. And uh, is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with our listeners related to Sova or otherwise? I don't think so. I just want to thank you for your podcast. It's wonderful. We listened to a bunch of episodes on a road trip recently, and it's such a cool idea to focus on positivity, to be anchored in this area in this part of the world. It's just, I really dig it. So thank you for what you're doing. That's our our pleasure. And how can anybody support or even donate to SOVA if that's oh. something that you, you offer? How can one support SOVA? Interesting. So reach out to me. It's weird. I, when you say donate, I think, wow, I'm more interested in if people have skills or ideas or things that they want to do or ideas or stories about their own educational experience that can help us think better about what we're trying to do. Reach out. Perfect. reach out to the website. Sova.org yep. is the website, correct? Yep. <laughs> and um, I cannot thank you enough for your pursuits and for all those who pursue along with you, ensuring positive change in higher education and ensuring America is providing real upward mobility for more people through higher education. And then some. <laughs> Thanks uh, so much for having again, me. Again, thank you so much. And to our listeners, thank you all for listening and thank you for pursuing the positive. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us again on the Pursuit of Podcast, the Pursuit of Sova. For more information, please check out sova.org, S-O-V-A dot O-R-G. New Letter Media has had the pleasure of working with Sova on some projects, and I will tell you that they are the real deal. This organization is here to truly help make sure every single voice is heard when it comes to affecting positive change in higher education policy. Check them out, show them some love. And as always, for all 
audio visual podcasting inquiries, check us out at newleonard.com.